Okay, we are going to jump right in. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, but first, I have, I have a question for you. Is there anybody in here who, when you are, um, when you are either reading a book or watching a movie, you get, like, super invested in what you're watching? Anybody? Okay, yes. So that is ridiculously me. I, I, I just suck right in. In fact, um, the reason I learned to read as a kid, I'm a homeschool kid. You may not have known that about me. Yes, okay. So I, I remember, like, trying to learn how to read and being like, you know, it's too hard. I can't do this. This is ridiculous. I don't even want to try. And then my aunt shows up one day with this box of books, and they were Nancy Drew books. Yeah, they were. Anybody here Nancy Drew fan? Okay. So as a little kid, that, I kid you not, that is why I learned to read. Because I want to fight crime. And I get so into the book or, or whatever it is that I'm watching. And in fact, I remember being a little kid and I would just devour these Nancy Drew novels. And I was Nancy Drew. I mean, I was in character. And I remember that I would take a break from reading to like go, you know, do something normal. Like go to the kitchen and get a drink or something. I... Not out loud, but I would narrate for myself because I would be so into the book. And I, in my mind, I would be like, and she walked into the kitchen and she got a cup down from the cupboard and she filled it with Kool-Aid and she took a drink. And I would just do this as I, you know, narrating my life because I was so into what I was doing, um, what I was reading. And my siblings and I, we would do this with movies that we watched. We may or may not still do this. But um, I'm one of seven, okay, so there's a lot of us, and how we would enjoy cinematic adventures together, we would like, you would call a character, okay, and that's it, you were that person for the movie, and that's, it's so ridiculous, but that's even how we would talk to each other, so we would be like, did you see what I just did, pulled a fast one on you, you better watch your back, because I'm pretty sure I'm coming for you, and as many of us as there were, you had to be, you had to be careful, if you were watching a movie you'd never seen before, um, because you're calling this and you don't really know. You're hoping for someone cool and good, but you might get stuck as like Jafar in Aladdin if you hadn't seen it before. But you couldn't, you couldn't wait too long to call it because then you know, you're not getting any action time in this movie whatsoever. So this is how I come by all of this naturally. This is, this is what we did growing up. That's what I did. And I, I now have a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and I've got college ministry stuff going on. And so I'm admittedly, I'm very busy, and I don't have as much time for cinematic adventures. Um, but one of the things that my husband and I love to do when we have the time is get into, like, a series on Netflix. And again, whew, I get sucked right in. And there was, um, there was a series um, a few years ago, quite a few years ago, actually, probably six or seven years ago, Ryan and I, before, before the kids, I just had, I had work, I would come home, and we started watching a little show called Lost. Yeah. Any Lost fans? Yeah. Okay, so we, we started watching Lost. We will not talk about the ending. We, no one will discuss that. But we got, we got really into that show, mostly me. And um, we, I remember months on end, by the time we started watching Lost, it had been out for quite a while. And so we had quite a few seasons that we were just, I mean, I remember racing home from work. It was winter. I even remember that. And sitting down and being like, okay. And Ryan and I, we would get our dinner. And this is kind of embarrassing. We would park it. And we, we were just so, mostly me. He was into it too. We were watching Lost. We were lost and lost. I shouldn't have said it. But anyway, we were. So, Okay. We were, we were really into it. And um, if, you don't, if you haven't like, seen the show or you don't know the premise of the show, it's basically um, there are these people, they're on a plane. They think they're going to make it safely to their destination. And the plane totally wrecks um, onto what they think is a deserted island. Okay, And so you get to learn about these, these people and these characters, and you get to learn about their life before and who they were before, and then who they are and who they become on this island as they are trying to make it and survive and ultimately get off, okay? And I am admittedly sappy, okay? So I get very attached to characters. 
And um, there was one, there was one such character that I was very, very attached to. Not, not. There was nothing romantic. This was not some sort of crush. But I was rooting for who I thought was the underdog. And so there's a character named Charlie, and I love Charlie. Okay. So what you learn about Charlie in his, you see his previous life before, before this crash. Okay. And you see that he has a really difficult upbringing. He has, like, a lot of bad things are happening to him. Um, he's struggling. He has a quick rise to fame um, that then kind of falls away. And long story short, he ends up being um, addicted to heroin. And, but he, he also has no money at this point. And so he's also kind of turned into a con man. And you see all this bad stuff happening. And then the plane crashes. And he is left on this island. And um, he starts to kind of get his life together, at least to try. So he starts to try to make the right decisions, do the right things. He even has an opportunity to go back to using drugs. He's like, no, like, I'm not going to do that. He falls for this. I want to say she was sweet, but honestly, she was kind of annoying. He falls for this girl named Claire. And, but I was, still, I was still rooting. Like, I wanted that to work, okay? And, and Claire is this single girl. She's very, very pregnant. And this, this baby does not have a dad. She's totally alone. Um, and Charlie, like, steps in. Like, he's going to take this role. He is going to take care of this girl. And then the baby's born. And he is going to protect them. And, and he's going to take care of. And he's going to kind of fill this role that's needing to be filled. And so I was totally rooting for him. I was all about it. But a few seasons in, I started getting super concerned with the writers and what their plans were for Charlie. Because it was starting to look like they were going to kill him off. And I panic attack because, again, I am living lost. Like, I, I am in the show, okay? And um, I, I start to really freak out. Like, this is not looking good. I, this is not going well. And so my husband, darling man that he is, you know, everything's already out. So he decides, unbeknownst to me, he's going to look it up on the Internet and see. And then that way he'll know if he needs to prepare me to lose Charlie or if Charlie's going to live, Okay. So he looks it up and he tells me, like, babe, you have nothing to worry about. Charlie is going to be fine. Some of you know where this is headed. So, so I, I'm like, okay, that's awesome. I'm watching it, like, no pressure. It's going to be fine. It starts getting to the end of the season, the end of the episode, and I'm thinking they, they've really got something up their sleeve because I don't know how they're going to get them out of this. This is looking like, I mean, but I was not afraid. I was not worried. I had total confidence Charlie was going to make it because Ryan said that he was. So I'm waiting. It looks like he's going to drown, and water is just filling everywhere, and there's no way out, and I'm waiting for the rescue. And I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and it never comes, and Charlie drowns okay he dies spoiler. I yeah spoiler it's been out for years I don't even feel bad but I was in okay like fetal position I mean I was devastated Ryan did not do this to me on purpose unbeknownst to him the information he had gathered wasn't correct okay so not only was I sad about losing Charlie but the writers had been trying to prepare me and tell me I should have known it was coming but I didn't because I believe Ryan, and I'm so, I, I've totally lost myself in this show. So I was devastated. That is not an understatement. I was very, very upset about losing Charlie. And we can sit here now, and we can laugh at how silly that is, and it is very silly. But I wonder what would it have been like if I had had somebody to tell me seven years ago that losing yourself that much in a television series and getting that consumed in a show is kind of dumb, Right? Maybe I would have still watched the show, but I would have watched it a little differently. And maybe I could have enjoyed it and not been curled up in a ball on the floor because I could have watched it with a little bit of distance and been able to know, you know, this is not reality. This is just pretend. Maybe that would have changed things for me. And then I think about my life and I think about the big questions that I have. And wouldn't it be cool if there was somebody who could speak truth into our life, and who could tell us this is what happens when you do this and maybe could save us from some of the pain that can come from foolishness. That would be cool, right? That's kind of what Ecclesiastes is. We have this opportunity um, to, to learn and to grow um, from these truths from somebody who's been there. Um, and if you were here before fall break, we learned something 
kind of crazy. If you grew up in church, you're probably surprised by this, that Solomon probably wasn't the author of Ecclesiastes. Raise your hand if you're surprised by that. I was totally shocked. But in the end, the more that I was able to kind of research and and study this, I don't think it actually matters because we're going to see as we start to get into our text that whether Solomon actually wrote this or it was someone else, he is giving us Solomon's viewpoint. And he doesn't do that to trick us, but he does do that to give us insight into if you were to wrestle through some of these things as Solomon, what would that that entail and what would that look like? Um, And so that's what we're going with. And to do that, I want to get just a little bit of background on Solomon so that you guys can kind of understand who who this is. So um, go to 1 Kings 3, and I need somebody to read for me. Verses 5 through 15. Who wants to read? Okay. Um, this, this is starting right after Solomon has become, he's become king, and um, the throne is firmly is in his grasp, and he's going up to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And this is basically what happens as he's there. Yeah, 1 Kings 3, 5 through 15. Or through, through 14 is good. Gideon the Lord appeared to Solomon in the three by night. The right track. Yes. And God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart for you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen as great people, to many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself life, long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. And give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Okay, good. Thank you. Okay, so that's what we get, this picture of this picture of Solomon, and here God has given him, as far as earthly standards go, God just said he's going to make him the wisest. He's not only going to do that, but he's going to add to him great wealth, a long, a long life, and fame. Those are the things that are being gifted to Solomon. And so we have this incredible opportunity to kind of sit at Solomon's feet and, and look through the lens that he's looking through. And here's, here's just kind of where I want you to be focused as we walk through this series in Ecclesiastes. So many times in life we chase things that we believe are going to make us happy. And we go after them. And maybe we attain it and maybe we don't. But either way, in the end, so many times there is that feeling of, eh, it was okay. Like I thought it was going to be better than that. I thought it was going to make me happy for longer than it did. And so many times we will look at our situation and we will blame that dissatisfaction and that unhappiness on what we, what we perceive to be this gap of perfection or having it all and where we actually are. And what happens with Ecclesiastes is when we are looking through the lens of, of Solomon, we can't do that. All of a sudden we can't really play the what if game when we're walking through this with Solomon because of everything that we just talked about, because of everything that God has given him. Those things don't exist. As far as earthly standards, God has handed these things to him. And so it's a gift as we get to walk through and explore the hard questions of life if we couldn't play that if-only game or we couldn't play that what-if game if I just had this, if I just had that. So I am super excited to go through that with you guys over the next few weeks. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 1, um, and we are, we're pulling things out of Ecclesiastes. So just so you know that, usually we walk through a book and we go verse by verse, and we break it down, and we explain it. And with Ecclesiastes, we are focusing on um, the main themes and the topics that we're going to be exploring. And tonight, we're going to be exploring wisdom. Um, and because of that, we're going to be jumping around just a little bit. So we're going to walk through Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18. And then just so you know, we're going to jump 
and we're going to go to Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 16. So starting in 1 verse 12, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Okay, so there it is right off the bat. Whether this is actually Solomon or not, he is wanting us to have that perspective, and we're wanting to go through this book with that perspective of Solomon. He says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So he starts by telling us, first of all, what his goal is and what he's going to do, and then even a little bit of his conclusion before we finish the text. So he says I, he's going to apply his heart to seek out and to search out wisdom. So God said, I'm going to make you wise. And Solomon said, I'm going to take that to the extreme. I'm going to seek out everything under the sun, everything on earth that there is to know, that there is to learn. I'm going to seek it out. I'm going to chase after wisdom. And then he tells us, again, kind of this conclusion that it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And that word of man, um, if you have the ESV, it'll say of man. Some other translations might say of men. I think the ESV got it right here. I think when he says of man that he's actually referring to Adam. And he's saying that it's an unhappy business um, that God has given to the children of Adam. And he is referring to when sin entered the world and a curse was placed on the world and God's, God's world that was perfect, that was fractured. And because of sin, we're cursed. And that's when God said, you know, you're going you're gonna to toil hard to work the ground. It's going to be a lot of work for you. And women, you're going to have difficulty in childbearing, and you're going to have a desire for control. And all of these things that entered the world when sin entered the world. And that's kind of what he's pointing out. Um, he goes on, he says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So he says, I've seen, I've seen it all. You know, I, I set out to search everything, and I did it. Everything under the sun, I've seen it, and it all amounts to vanity. Or we learned a few weeks ago that another really great word for that in, in translation is vapor, mist. It all amounted to nothing, and a striving after wind. One commentary put it this way. It said, a feeding on the wind you just stop and think about that how in the world can you can you do that how can you ever take a bite out of the wind it's absolutely impossible it can't be done what is crooked cannot be made straight what is lacking cannot be counted I said in my heart I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge so again, that's kind of was just some of the background that we just learned about Solomon. Yeah, that's true. God said, there's not going to be any, any like you before you or after you. So he's saying, like, you know, all those goals and all those things, like, I've done it, I did it, I've surpassed everyone. Um, he goes on to say, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. So first he tells us, he goes and he chases wisdom, and he goes way over here, and he's going to seek it, and he's going to seek it, and he's going to seek it. And he found that it was vapor, striving after the wind. And now he tells us, okay, it's just not doing it for me. Maybe I'll go the other way. I'll seek out madness and folly. And so he goes this way, and he chases after that. Except he finds the same thing when he goes over there. And he's going to tell us why. He says, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So the more that he found out and the more that he knew, the more he was grieved over the things that he found and the more pain that brought to his life. It didn't fix anything. It couldn't fix anything. We're going to jump over to Ecclesiastes 2, and we're going to start in verse 12. He says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. He's going to think about all of this. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. That's kind of depressing. He said there's absolutely nothing new. There's nothing of novelty, um, nothing that truly has not been done before that can be done. He says, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. So he does decide that. He's chased this way. He's chased this way. And he has said, you know, that they, are both, that they are both vapor. 
but he does end up deciding, no, it is better to be wise in this journey. He, he realizes that. He compares it and says there is more gain in light than in darkness. Um, and he goes on to say, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity, vapor. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. And so he's telling us that in the end, he, he chases, he chases over here. It's not enough. He chases this way. It's not enough. Because in the end, no matter how much wisdom he gets, no matter what he learns, he can't change the fact that he's going to die just like the fool's going to die. And in the end, what truly will he be remembered for? He's saying, no, life is going to go on. You can get as smart as you want. You can read as many books as you want. You can gain as much knowledge as you want. In the end, the same thing is going to happen to all of us. We're going to meet death. God has given all of us a number of days that we have to live. And in the end, it doesn't matter how smart you are or how much you know. You can't change that. We're all going to wind up in a box. So that is kind of a depressing way to end off. We're going to take a quick break. Drew's going to get up and talk to us um, about, about wisdom and about what we need to do with that. So, quick break. It's great, Rachel. Thank you. It's good. Say that again. What? Like when would we be done throwing stuff or whatever? Um, seems like it takes, seems like it took like a couple hours from when we started. I think the, no, did he say, hey, where'd he go? Where's Alec? Hey, Alec. Wow. Remind me, what time's the color run? So we need Okay, and they start running at eight. Okay, okay. Yeah, they. I think they start running at eight. Maybe at eight thirty. We would get there at seven forty-five. It just depends on when the last people run past us. So that'd be my guess. Yeah.
the Halloween announcement right now? Yeah, go ahead and do that. All right, hey guys, I kind of uh, foreshadowed the announcement coming. Okay, so next Sunday, October 30th, that is the day before Halloween, uh, we are actually going to go out west to town to Bailey Winter's family's house, and we're having a really big bonfire and s'mores. We're going to play a couple of, like, Halloween games. You are not going to want to miss it. It's going to be a lot of fun. So um, make sure you keep that Sunday evening open. It's probably going to start like 7, 7.30. More announcements to come. Uh, but be ready for that and be thinking of a really cool Halloween costume. Uh, secondly, uh, kind of like we did an offering tonight, um, next week we are going to be doing a second offering for the church that we actually just got back from fall break serving. So the, the church that we served there was called Community Care. Um, church and they actually um, are in a poor part of Dallas and they um, serve their community every week every Saturday they do a food drive for families in their community um, and they were talking about how their church buzz budget doesn't necessarily allow them to do this easily every week but they continue to give and continue to be cheerful givers and a lot of times um, the members of the church just pay for what's needed straight out of their pockets and so um, we just have recognized that, you know, we've been blessed and we've been given um, a lot of um, things that, that are here provided for us. And so next week we're going to be taking up a second offering, and I would just really like to encourage you guys to pray about giving. Um, we would like to fund, um, we would try to, we'd like to raise about $100 for them to just fund a couple of extra boxes. They want to increase their giving to their community, and we would like to be able to pay that difference in what they would like to increase. So. If you guys could just think about um, maybe bringing, if everybody here, you know, brought a couple dollars, um, we would have that met for them for a month so that they could serve their community. So next Thursday, it will be another offering night, and um, it'll be really cool. So, and if you want to hear about what happened in Dallas, there were six or seven or eight of us who went. We'd love to talk to you about it. So come check with me, and I can give you more information on that later. Sweet. So, remind me, Kelsey, it's like 50 bucks. They, they feed 50 people with that roughly, right? Yeah, um, oh, so. So a so week, they yeah. Would like to increase that to seventy-five. Yeah, a week. and so, so just you know, this is—they're not just serving in a low-income area in kind of a poverty-stricken area. The church members themselves are mostly from a low-income, poverty-stricken area. So when they say that they're reaching in their own wallets to to pay for this, that's not with like a bunch of you know extra money laying around to do that. They're they're sacrificing to try and feed the people in their community and be kind of light of the gospel there. And so imagine what we could do if we could, um, if, if we could go in there and take care of like um, four or five weekends for them. Or if we could just at least pump up like give them, give them the extra to kind of get this boost that they want to do to do some stuff. So it would be easy for us. Um, so I hope you'll, hope you'll think about doing that. Like I said, just bring in a few bucks at least uh, next week to kind of do that. I think that could be really cool. Um, all right. So Rachel walked us through these texts, um, uh, did a great job, and I'm really glad that I've already seen Lost. I would be so ticked at you right now. Um, so I, that is my thing. I don't like, uh, I, I, get, I can sort of get in. I'm not like super, super into the shows as far as like sucked in like, like Rachel and probably my wife does, but I do hate having it ruined for me. Um, and my son Hudson loves to ruin it for me. So, um, he, yeah, he loves to tell you what's about to happen. So, I'm crazy. But, okay, um, to, tonight, so we are talking about both a very appropriate topic and a, and a very weird topic um, for us to be working through tonight. Um, it's a very appropriate topic to, to talk through this idea of um, pursuing wisdom and knowledge because basically most of you in this room are in a phase of life where this is what you are giving your life to. Um, for four to eight years, you are giving yourselves to the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, like dedicated time to this. And so we're here to tell you a huge waste of time, guys. So um, hopefully maybe try to talk to somebody about getting your money back or I don't know, but... Um, yeah, so the, but this is this really is it's it's an appropriate topic for college students because this is this is what you're doing is chasing after and it's important for us to have a right view of what wisdom and knowledge is and what it isn't. Um, it's also a weird one to talk through because um, 
It's expected when we come to a book like Ecclesiastes for the writer to say things like, if you spend your whole life chasing after wealth, that's wasting your time. That's chasing the wind. That's vapor. Um, if you spend your whole life chasing pleasure, just um, debauchery and drunkenness and, and parties and all this stuff, like that's wasting your life. That's meaningless. That's vapor. Um, if you spend your life pursuing your own glory, that's vapor. But for him to stand up and say, if you spend your life pursuing wisdom, vapor, chasing after the wind, that, that just doesn't sound right. Like, I thought, I thought that was, that we were supposed to do that stuff. I'm paying, I'm paying a whole lot of money to do that stuff right now. So it's you, right? That's, so so what, what do we make of that? And, and the reason it, it, it does seem weird to hear that, that, um, Wisdom is vanity is because by and large, it really is a good thing. He, he even says it in the passage here that Rachel read to you in 2.13. Um, he says, I turn to consider wisdom. This is 12. I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And then he in 13 says, and then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. So the writer even says, the teacher even says, no, wisdom is the way to go. There's more gain in it than folly. And so, so that's what makes this a little strange. So the Bible, as it talks about wisdom, um, tells us, and I'm kind of lumping knowledge in there with it, wisdom and knowledge. When the Bible talks about wisdom and knowledge, um, there are at least three things that the Bible says about it. Um, so the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge is, first of all, good and right. All right? It is good and right to chase after wisdom and knowledge. The Bible lifts up the pursuit of wisdom over and over and over again and says that wisdom itself is a gift from God. Proverbs 2.6 For Yahweh gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. So wisdom comes from God. Proverbs 5.1 My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. And, and I could just read through different Proverbs for about a half an hour. Um, that lift up wisdom. But it's in other places like Job 28.18, the price of wisdom is above pearls. And in the Bible, people who have wisdom are, are lifted up and, and honored. Joseph is kind of renowned for the great wisdom he brings um, into Egypt and, and the way that moves him to the top. Solomon, as we read, is known and, and seen as, as a great man because of his great wisdom. Daniel is spoken of highly because of his wisdom. Jesus, Luke says, one of the defining characteristics of Jesus as he's growing up is that people are enamored by the wisdom that this young boy and then even young man has. Where did he get this wisdom from? It's a marker of, it's a marker of people in the Scriptures that we want to be like. Paul often prays for his churches to grow in knowledge and wisdom. That's one of his primary prayers, that they would grow in knowledge and wisdom. I pray that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and insight um, so that you would know God more. Wisdom, knowledge, understanding, insight. He prays for those things. To know, kind of a uh, uh, whatever, Drew's definition of wisdom, to know what is true and right and how to put that into practice wisdom, to know what is true and right, and then how to live that out. And that is a beautiful thing. That is a good thing that is sorely lacking in, in many people today. And, uh, and, and the Bible lifts it up. Even non-spiritual knowledge is a, a really, really beautiful and good thing. Not Things that aren't just about um, the Bible. The, the knowledge that you're pursuing in your classes right now is good and right things that you ought to be kind of running after and trying to, trying to gain more of. I got, uh, last week, I was feeling like kind of weird. I thought I had allergies. Um, I started getting like the sore throat that comes with like that, that nasty drainage stuff. And, and so I was taking everything I could to shut down the allergies and my throat kept hurting worse and worse. And I, I woke up like Tuesday night or something or, or Monday night, I don't know, like just dying and I couldn't go back to sleep and, and found out that it wasn't drainage, it wasn't allergies, I had strep throat and, uh, and the doctor, I went to go talk to the doctor and, uh, and she was just like, yeah, this is the kind basically, like, like allergies, you can kind of, it will go away eventually, strep like just keeps getting worse until you're in the ground is what she said and I remember just thinking, so then like, what, what, did that, what does that mean, like, like a, 
150 years ago, like before they gave me antibiotics. What does that mean? You know, does that mean I just, I kind of was jokingly asking my, my uh, PA friend, like, is that, does this mean I just die from strep throat? And he was kind of like, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> like it, it can, like the toxins of it work its way into your blood. And I was asking my other doctor friend, it can mess up, it can mess with your heart, it can mess with, with like your kidneys, it can mess like strep throat. And, and my doctor was saying, that's, that's, um, one of the leading causes of death in third world and developing countries, strep throat. And, and I had it last week. I had a, I had a uh, whatever you want to say, a life-threatening illness um, last week. But, but, but I didn't because, because of antibiotics, because of the knowledge of this stuff. Um, and I'm so grateful for it. I'm, I'm grateful for things like the Internet where I have the ability to, to gain and access information. My, my friend was talking to me about how he was listening to this podcast that said like, like, people your age don't hardly even know what it's like to wonder something anymore. Like, I, I, wonder, I wonder who was the second draft pick in the 1998 NFL draft. Like, like we used to wonder those things. We used to, we used to talk about those things. Or do you, what, was, what, was that, what was that big song off the Green Day album that came out in 98? You know, like, we used to wonder those things. You don't, nobody wonders those things anymore because they go, hang on just a second, right? And just like I can find it in five seconds or less. And, uh, and, and there's actually a lot of really good to that, that like it is easy to find information. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for people um, giving a proper understanding of like hygiene and cleanliness, the idea that washing your hands and keeping like um, cooking areas clean prevents lots of disease. All of those things are good. We call those things, actually, there is kind of a theological term for it. We call it common grace. Um, that is, yes, there is a special grace that we get through Jesus Christ, but there's a common grace that God, it is a gift that God gives to the world, to everyone, um, through the knowledge that He's given to other people and through the skills that He's given to people. And so antibiotics are a common grace, a gift that I don't deserve but I'm given by God and His goodness through knowledge, through wisdom. It's good. Pursue knowledge. Run after wisdom. They are good gifts from God. I would encourage you to do those things because the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge is good and right. We also see this from the Scriptures, though, that the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge is dangerous. I had a... uh, at the school, at the college that Scott and I both went to to, to prepare for ministry stuff, the academic dean there, he, he used to have this phrase, he would say, get all of the knowledge that you can keep sanctified. Get all the knowledge that you can keep sanctified. And, and, and why does he say that? He says that, first of all, because he really does value knowledge and wisdom. He's, a, he's an academic dean. He's training people to, to, to get more knowledge. But then he throws in this, this phrase, all that you can keep sanctified. And the reason why is because knowledge is not always easy to keep sanctified. Because it's, it's, it has a tendency of getting to us. Knowledge has a tendency um, to bring pride with it. That the more I gain of it, the more pride comes with it. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up, but knowledge puffs up. The more, the more I get, the more I can kind of expand myself as though I'm great. That feeling of superiority, um, let's be honest, just comes naturally when you know more than somebody else. When you know more than other people, it's just natural to feel like you're a little better than them. Um, like you're superior to them, it does seem to be true, and, and there are different studies about this, and sometimes it's debated and all of those things. It does seem to be true, though, um, that, that those in the academic sphere are less likely to believe in God, are less likely to have faith and, and trust in Him. Um, I don't think, though, that that is because um, the smarter you get, the more you realize that God and all of that stuff is foolishness. Now, there, there are far too many brilliant Christians that I know and brilliant Christians throughout history that we've built much of our knowledge of science, Isaac Newton and philosophy, Thomas Aquinas and others on these Christians. I mean, there are far too many brilliant Christians for me to believe that this is simply a matter of intelligence. Now, I believe that the reason there's so many in academia who, who do not believe is because s- devoting your life to the acquisition of knowledge can also very easily be a devoting to the acquisition of pride that slips in with it. 
And a person who feels like they know a whole lot, it's really hard for them to humble themselves and, and admit, there's something I don't know, and I need you to tell me about it. Also, it comes with this idea that, that when you are in an area of, say, academics or other people, when, when they deem something to be foolish or ridiculous, the last thing you want to do is align yourself with that. Because I've got to look smart like the rest of these people. I've got to look like I know what I'm doing like the rest of these people. And, and so I don't think it's a coincidence that those who, who seem to be higher up a lot of times, professors in knowledge, not because they're smarter, um, but because they've given themselves to something that can be good, but often brings a pride that hinders us from hearing or seeing the truth. This, unfortunately, can even be true about spiritual things. Um, man, I saw it. I, I've lived it. I was it. And, and a lot of times, probably, if I'm honest, still, I still am that. Um, but I saw it at Ozark, the school that I went to, where, where students come and you are just getting filled with knowledge of God's Word and filled with knowledge of doctrine and theology um, far more than, than most of the church around you because most of the people don't have that. And, and so quickly, um, uh, pride comes in, even when we're talking about amazing things like God and His love and His goodness and, and Christ and His faithfulness. And even as I'm talking about those things, I can allow myself to be prideful about the fact that I know more of that than you do. And, and it, comes, it comes easy at Christian colleges, at Christian schools. Um, and and I, I've also seen actually a number of people from my school, um, those who considered themselves to be some of the smartest, and they really were some, some of the smartest students, those who seem um, to be some of the smartest in their endeavors to prove themselves smarter than everybody else, find themselves pushing further and further away from God's Word. And, and often some of the people who were um, our Greek professor there, he would always say, my Greek three students, which are the people who are like furthest along. That's the last level of Greek that you're studying. My Greek three students, those are the most likely to step away um, from the faith because, because there's a point where if I'm just agreeing with all of this like all the rest of you people, how in the world am I supposed to show myself better and smarter than you? Like I got, I got, I got to step up. I got, I got to differentiate myself by showing you where I'm actually a little bit smarter than some of you who believe in this stuff, and uh, and it happens easy. Even with spiritual things, we can get prideful, um, and so we see in the scripture that God lifts up wisdom and calls it a good thing. But we also see Him at different times uh, attacking those people who were considered to be wise. Job 5.13, he catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. The prophets actually rail against multiple times, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah, rail against those people, um, those people in their country, they, they literally just called them the wise men, people in Israel or in Judah, who were considered to have special insight, not just into the ways of the world and not just into politics, but special insight into who God was and how he worked. And they would stand up and they would say things like, well, God would never do this. God would never punish His people as long as the temple is sitting in the middle of it. Trust me, I've studied this stuff. I know this stuff. The temple is God's. It's His home. He's not going to come wipe out the temple. And it was the wisest sometimes who stood up to say those kinds of things, or the quote-unquote wisest who stood up to say those. And so the prophets would, would dog them a lot. Isaiah 29, 14. In Isaiah 29, Isaiah is talking about God doing very unexpected things and the fact that he was going to come and punish Judah, punish Jerusalem, and then also very unexpected things in that he was going to then save Jerusalem and punish some of the powerful nations that came in to get it. And, and this is what it kind of says. God says, And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, God says. And the discernment of their discerning man shall be hidden. And God says, I'm going to do things that all your wise men with all their thinking, with all their great analytics and all their logic are never going to see coming. Um, they can't. And they think they're so smart. And they think they've got it all figured out. Anytime, by the way, you have it all figured out, be careful. It's a dangerous place to be in when you've got anything all figured out. But especially God. Um, when you've got them all figured out, that's a dangerous spot to be. Wisdom and the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge, it's good and right, but it's also dangerous. And lastly, the teacher here in Ecclesiastes tells us that ultimately it's, it's futile. 
um, that it does not, does not get us where we want. He says the teacher tells us, or that, yeah, the teacher tells us that chasing wisdom is like chasing the wind. And for two reasons that we saw in these texts. Um, the first one is this, that, the, that uh, the pursuit of wisdom, even though it can be good and right, does not change our end destination, as Rachel said to us. We all end up in the same place. This is what he says, Ecclesiastes 2, 13 through 16. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet... I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity, for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forget, forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Is it like pursuing wisdom... And the end becomes like chasing vapor because it does not get you very far. He, he says that death is coming to all of them. There's this, uh, there's this game that I play sometimes with my kids. You all know it. I think all of you have played it. Uh, simplest card game in the world, war. You guys know war, right? All it is, it's not. I mean, you barely call it a game because there's like no skill involved. All you do, split the deck in half, and each person takes turn turning over cards. And whoever has the highest card gets both cards, right? And, and so you just do this and just flip them over. And whoever has the highest card gets both cards. Every now and then you'll get like a tie. You'll both have one. And so you set those to the side and then you both play for a little bit to see. And kind of the tiebreaker gets all the cards there. And I hate that game. Um, I hate that game because there really is no skill to it. I hate that game because that game lasts forever. And I hate that game because I actually I came to a realization one day. I don't know why it took me so long to figure this out. Um, but there comes a point in every game where one person has all the aces. And at that point, like, it is inevitable that that person will win. It doesn't matter how many, and, and I may be able to beat that person a number of times. He may throw out some threes and fours and fives, and I may have tens and eights. I may even have kings and queens. But if I have no aces ultimately what's going to happen is I'm just going to continue playing until it's all in, until he gets them all. Okay? He may have nothing but aces, but if that's what he's got, he's going to beat me. Um, and, and what Ecclesiastes is saying is, is life is actually a lot like playing death in a game of war and where death has all the aces. And, and I can play wise, and I, and I may have, some of us have, may, ha, may have a few kings and queens up our sleeves, and some of us may be stuck with nothing but twos and threes, all right? And those are twos and threes are going to go out quicker, and there may be some who really do seek wisdom, and by their wisdom and by their knowledge, they're able to prolong the inevitable, but let's be honest, that's all they're really doing. And so if the truth is, no matter how long I play this, or how well I focus and pay attention on what I'm doing, if it's going to end up exactly the same as me just throwing a card out there, then why am I spending all this effort doing it? Why, what is the point of gaining all this wisdom if it really does nothing? It just goes with me when I die. And, and I might be able to prolong my life, but I'm not even guaranteed of that in chasing those things. This is one of the biggest questions that I believe atheists cannot answer. If there is no God, if there is nothing after this, what is the point? And, and the truth is, most atheists, no, no, I would argue that all atheists, live inconsistently in this area of their life. They either think inconsistently in that they try to convince themselves and others around them that there is some sort of point in life, like the good of humanity, even though that word good is robbed of any meaning whatsoever if there is nothing outside of this to define it. And so you can say the good of humanity, but, but good really just gets defined by what you think that is. Um, and so, so they'll try to come up with some point or purpose in life, but that's inconsistent thinking. Or they'll be honest and real and tell you that there really isn't any point in life, but they don't live that way. No, no, they, they keep plugging along as though, as though getting a greater degree matters when it doesn't. As though getting more money and building a bigger house matters when it doesn't. It's, 
it's complete inconsistency because what the writer says is true. If death comes to us all, and if that's all there is, then there, then there really is no point to any of it. Death has all the aces. Death has all the aces. So you can do whatever you want for as long as you want to try, but eventually death's going to win. And so what was the point of doing all those things? By the way, I don't blame atheists for living inconsistently. Um, I get it. Because I actually, what, what I said a couple weeks ago, something about what, what Ecclesiastes says, that, that God has placed eternity in our hearts. I think as much as I can try to tell myself and convince everybody else that there is no point to this life, there is this thing deep inside my gut, deep inside my heart that won't let me really believe that. That won't let me live that way. And that's why people who will stand up and swear that there is no God and that there is nothing to live for are still living for something. Because, because there's no way around that. You can't get around that as much as you want. So the reason um, that death is, uh, or that wisdom is like chasing the wind is because first of all, it does not change our end destination. And secondly, actually chasing wisdom ultimately only shows us how unfixable all our problems really are. The more wisdom you gain, the more you see how bad off we all really are. This is what the writer says in chapter 1, <coughs> verses 14 and 15. Um, says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity or vapor, and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And then down in 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And what he's saying is actually the, the, di the, like the deeper you dig into all of this, the more you see how jacked up this world really is. And it's, it's not like Legos that fall apart. My, my son's always building Legos and always dropping Legos and, and getting upset about it, but we've kind of learned, t taught him, you don't have to panic. You can put all those pieces back together. It's okay. You know what? The world is a lot, a lot more like, like a, a, a crystal vase that's fallen to the ground. And you cannot, with all the wisdom and all the skill in the world, put that back together. And, and often the people who see that the most clearly are the people who have gained the most wisdom and knowledge. The more you know, the more you see how bad it really is. And for all of our great wisdom and knowledge and all the beautiful things that our knowledge has brought, like antibiotics and amazing technology and the internet and hygiene and all of those things, let's be honest. Like with every one of those facets of knowledge, we've brought all kinds of evil into the world as well. That, that all of the things that we run after are not simply helping us. The world is not better than it was 100 years ago. It's not better than it was 200 years ago. There are things that are better, but at the exact same time, there are things that are worse. And so all wisdom does is it shows us how bad things really are. He says, man, with more wisdom is just more sorrow. All the wisdom in the world cannot fix this thing that we're in. At least not the wisdom that Ecclesiastes describes. The wisdom that he describes, the wisdom about everything under the sun. It is the kind of wisdom that is a knowledge of all the things that are here on the earth, all the things that we can see in front of us. That kind of wisdom has no power to fix us or do anything right. But there is another kind of wisdom, and it is the most beautiful kind of wisdom, but it is also um, the most difficult to see. Um, in fact, the Bible tells us that um, there is a kind of wisdom that is the truest form of wisdom, but that it actually often looks like foolishness or idiocy to everyone else around us. And so it becomes the, the most difficult to perceive. I, I, I quoted from you just a little bit ago, Isaiah 29, 14, where God says he's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. Um, that, that statement in Isaiah is not the last time God says it. Actually, Paul quotes that exact verse in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. He quotes that exact verse. I want to take you there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19 is a quote of Isaiah 29, 14 that I read to you. 
This is what it says. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, or this is, uh, Paul says, for it is written, okay, so the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerning I will, uh, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Um, Paul is talking about this weird wisdom and he goes in and says God is going to undo or going to make the wisdom of the world look foolish. What is he talking about in this passage? Um, Well, let's read on. So let me start there again. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, that is a mouthful that I just spoke to you. So, so let me go back and unpack what Paul just said. Um, he says in verse uh, 21, for since in the wisdom, or let me start actually in verse 20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What Paul is saying is God did something just a short time ago. God did something that turned the wisdom of the world on its head that turned what everybody saw as common sense, what everybody saw as intuitive, what everybody saw as natural and right and expected, God turned it on its head. And then he says this in 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Let me paraphrase that for you real quick. Verse 22, um, sorry, verse 21, For God chose to make it, so that people couldn't just figure him out and his plan out through their intelligence. That's what Paul says there. God chose to act in a way that people could not use their own intelligence to figure him out. God chose to enact a plan that nobody with their own clever abilities or with their own knowledge could have seen coming. God did that, and He did it for a purpose. He's saying that God did things in a way that would not make sense according to the worldly systems. So what is that? What is it that God did that does not make sense, that nobody could have figured out with their own knowledge, that nobody could have studied enough books to see coming? This is what He says in verse 22, the next verse. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to choose and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than, uh, wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. The Greeks were actually known for their great love of knowledge and of learning and of philosophy. And so he says, this is what the Greeks want to see. They want to be able to put two and two together with their wisdom and their logic and their philosophy. And he says that the Jews demand signs. And we saw that actually, if you read through the Gospels, when we looked through the book of Mark last year, that the Jews continually come up to Jesus and say, give us a sign that you are who you say you are. Give us a sign that you're the Messiah. And and he says, but we preach Christ crucified, which he says is a stumbling block to Jews. The word is actually literally scandalon. It is a scandal that we preach Christ crucified. And to the Greeks, it is foolishness. It is idiocy. What the world says is, if you are looking for the long-awaited Messiah, the one that we've been wanting for all this time, um, don't put all your chips down on the crucified peasant. Like, we've been waiting for him just as long as you have, says, says all the other Jews. We, we want him just as much as you do, and we know what to look for, and it's not the guy that the Gentiles defeated. It's not the guy that the Romans crucified. That is, by definition, the opposite of what the Messiah is supposed to be. Paul says, no, 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 but that was the way God designed it. And man would not could not come up with this idea that the ruler of the universe would come to earth and get his butt kicked. That God himself would come down and get worked over by human beings. And if that, if that phrase itself, God getting his butt kicked, makes you kind of feel a little uncomfortable, then you get a sense of why nobody would buy it. Why nobody would believe that that guy up there on the cross, um, that that guy's the guy that we're supposed to worship. Because that's not how God works. 
That's not what he's supposed to be doing. And so nobody saw this coming. But what people did not know is that he wasn't losing up there on the cross. That he wasn't losing, that he was actually overcoming when he was up on the cross. That he was overcoming by his death. He was overcoming sin and death. And he was overcoming the wickedness of the world. And we could never come up with that. We could never see that, which is sort of the point. Paul goes on to say in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Here's why he does it. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So nobody can say, I was smart enough to figure that out. So nobody can say, by my own wisdom, by my own goodness, by my own righteousness, I got this thing nailed down. He says he made it so that nobody could be able to do it that way. And he says this, verse 30, and because of him, that is God, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he says, what nobody knew is when Jesus was on the cross, he was overcoming. And then he says, and what nobody expected is that God then placed you in Christ, which means when Jesus was on the cross, you were overcoming. (coughs) Nobody could have seen that coming. Nobody could have known that. Um, And this is why this kind of wisdom, by the way, because he says that God, that Jesus was becoming wisdom for us and he was becoming righteousness and he was becoming redemption. This is why this kind of wisdom can do all the things that the Ecclesiastes wisdom can't. Remember what I said? The wisdom from Ecclesiastes, or what the teacher said, the problem with it, the reason that it's chasing after the wind is that it cannot stop death. That's exactly what this wisdom did. In dying, it stopped death. In dying and and raising back from the grave, stopped death. And we also said that wisdom, no matter how smart it is and no matter how much of it acquire, can never put all the pieces back together. It is impossible, he says, to make straight what has already been made crooked. But the Bible says that actually it's already happening. That God is already at work to redeem everything that is made broken. That He already started it in you and I. That He is redeeming us and restoring us back to what we were supposed to be. And there will be a day when everything that is broken will be put back together. And everything that is crooked will be made straight again. And all of this is only seen or perceived through the wisdom that comes from God. He's not saying that it's nonsensical. He's not saying that that it's illogical. He's just saying that it's counterintuitive. He's just saying that that you ought to study it, you ought to run after it, but recognize that even in your running after it, that you still need the gift of God to help you see it. And and it is still something that only he could have come up with. Nobody else would come up with that idea. And and this, this is the only wisdom that's going to matter a hundred years from now. This is the only wisdom that has the power to actually do something in your life. Pursue the wisdom that you have in college. Pursue the wisdom you're getting in the classes and put that to use to bring more common grace into this world. Use the gifts that you have to do good and right in this world, but recognize that there is one wisdom that is greater above all of those things and worth pursuing above all. And it is one that you can give your life to, and it is one that we need Him also to give to us at the same time. That's the kind of wisdom that I want. That's the kind of wisdom that I want for you, even if it looks foolish to everyone else around you. Let me pray for that. Father, this is pretty crazy and, and pretty cool that, um, that you came up with this plan when for like the history of the world, I think, and, and even now, everybody thinks that, um, that the whole religion thing is about us getting, is about us finding our way to you. And, uh, and then you came in with this, this backwards plan that's, that says, no, no, it's all about me coming to get you. Um, 
that, that, that you came and did what we couldn't, and, uh, and that you did it in the most uh, lowliest and shocking and scandalous of ways um, to, to send your son to come and, and look like he was getting defeated, um, but then to win in that. And, and that, is, that is beautiful and amazing, and, and I'm so grateful for it, and I don't... Uh, don't spend enough time dwelling on it. Lord, I, I, I ask this, that you would give us that kind of wisdom that sees all that Jesus is and all his beauty, and that you would give us the hope that that wisdom gives, that one day everything that is broken is going to be made right, and that you would cause us to live out of that wisdom as we pursue the other knowledge and the other wisdom, that we would pursue first and dwell first upon the wisdom that is Jesus Christ and his dying to save us. Um, I thank you for that, and I ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Is there anything else we are going to say at the end? Okay. We're done then. I hope you'll hang out for a little bit. There's something over there. What is that over there? Mookies, I think. Um, okay. Cookie muffins, s'mores, cookies. So hang out, eat, and... Chat with us.